This is The One Thing Podcast, and I'm your host, Dr. Adam Rindy. The One Thing Podcast brings together leaders in functional and naturopathic medicine to discuss actionable information that may unlock puzzles in the areas of gut health, brain health, metabolism, and longevity. Please note, these episodes do not replace the opinion of your doctor. They are not intended to diagnose or treat any condition. Please discuss this information with your provider and discuss your own unique personal health history before adapting this information. Please subscribe to our episodes so that you can stay on top of the most current information in these areas of medicine. In this episode, I welcome on one of the OGs of the medical cannabis world, Dr. Jake Felice. Dr. Felice is someone I've known for over 15 years. He is a cannabis author, clinician, educator, and consultant whose vision is to advance the science and practical applications of cannabis. In this episode, we go deeply into the endocannabinoid system, otherwise known as the ECS. We speak about the origins of the endocannabinoid system, its applications in medicine and health. We go into details about terpenes and other factors such as the entourage effect and how we can most effectively use cannabis in medicine and in healthcare. Dr. Felice has a passion for this topic. He knows his stuff, and I think you'll enjoy hearing his explanations and details about the future of the use of medical cannabis in healthcare and current applications. So without further ado, please join me as we join the interview in session. It's so great to connect with you again. So great to see you again, Dr. Rindy. It's a real pleasure to uh, be speaking with you again. It's been a long time. It has. The last time I think I've actually visited with you face-to-face was uh, many, many years ago. You were, you were a TA in a radiology course. We were actually looking at x-rays and yes. images and uh, trying uh, to make uh, sense uh. of right versus left. <laughs> yeah. Don't get that one confused, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's so, great. That's uh, great. I always appreciated your, um, just the way you, you carry yourself and your, uh, your energy and your thought process. So I, I'm really glad to have this chance to sit down with you. Excited to be here. Um, so why don't we just catch up on what you've been up to the last 10, 12, 14 years well, um, what I, I, my practice took a turn. I, I was very much a physical medicine oriented practitioner. Um, even back before my days in medical school at Bastyr, I was a licensed massage therapist and had trained in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Um, very early on, I did a Mayan abdominal massage course, which, uh, I thought was very interesting. Um, uh, and uh, one of my one of my body worker colleagues and co-students at the time was a, a curandero in New Mexico. His family had been there for over 400 years. He learned a lot of his um, techniques from his grandmother uh, and practiced regularly uh, um, in uh, Las Vegas, uh, New Mexico. Tony Gold, if you're out there and you're, I hope you're walking the earth still, buddy. Um, anyway, uh, he did not attend this mine abdominal course, but he was very interested and I wanted to practice. So, um, went over to his place and I started doing the routine and he said, Oh, hold on a minute. Stop. Let me show you what my grandmother taught me. 
and they were very, very similar. Um, and that land bridge between the Maya and uh, New Mexico had somehow been crossed to a large degree with these techniques. Anyway, that's a bit of a side story. But the other thing that he really talked a lot about, and I never saw him use, um, was uh, this tincture that uh, the local healers applied to uh, mostly for sore muscles and arthritic uh, conditions. And he had said that you know, one of the ingredients is cannabis. And I said, okay, well, <laughs> you know, and uh, left it at that. But uh, years later, um, as I was learning about cannabis from my patients, um, that kind of clicked in and I started getting interested in topicals. I've written extensively on topicals. Um, we have a, a peer-reviewed, uh, uh, out for review now, um, and I find the topical aspect of medical cannabis fascinating. Uh, but my patients um, at the time, and I think this, boy, this must, this is at least a decade ago, um, I had two patients in a row come in, and just coincidentally, they had pulled themselves off of the same benzodiazepine all by themselves. And the first patient I asked, what did you do? And they said, marijuana. And I was like, okay, <laughs> marijuana. Um, but the second patient was the exact same medication, and I said, how? How did you do it? And they said, medical cannabis. And the differentiation between the wording really struck me, and I started, just like Sanjay Gupta, I started doing a little bit of research, and I was astounded. Uh, of course, uh, we still need a lot more uh, research. Um, but even despite the legal prohibition and still a lot of prohibition on cannabis research at the federal level, still to this day, uh, we have um, as much peer-reviewed information on medical cannabis as just about any plant in the entire biosphere, with a possible exception of garlic. Um, so there is an amazingly robust literature set, much of it uh, cell tissue uh, studies. We need more human studies. Um, but it's just astounding, and um, I, then I started incorporating that into my practice. Uh, for many years, I wrote cannabis authorizations. Uh, I still consult. I don't do the authorization forms anymore. Uh, we can talk about why that is, uh, but I feel that puts us at risk as practitioners. And now in this state, since it is legal on the recreational side, I, I no longer do those because I feel that my patients can now have access. Um, so that's kind of the short story. Um, recently, I have been really interested in um, not just cannabis and cannabinoids, but the signaling system that it operates on, the endocannabinoid system. You'll hear me say ECS a lot endocannabinoid system. It's the most dense, uh, robust receptor system in the human nervous system, in the mammalian nervous system for that matter. And biology is inherently stingy with what it decides to produce. And so if things are not biologically um, conducive to survival, they tend to get bred out of uh, the genome. And um, that is the exact opposite has happened in the human nervous system. Uh, this uh, system is a, it's a 600 million year old receptor system. So anything that has lasted that long in biology uh, is robust. Um, and uh, many, many clinicians and researchers know very little bit of, uh, very little about it. And unlike so many um, conventional medications, the knowledge base of this plant has come up from the people 
asking their doctors, just like my patients did to me. Um, and so it is not being uh, driven by pharmaceutical interest, but it is being driven by popular interest. So that's kind of the last 14 years in a nutshell. Wonderful. Yeah, I mean, I think the the ECS system is a, you know, a component of medicine now that you know, we're, we're thinking about and learning how to use to help our, our patients balance their health, their health conditions. Maybe um, for this conversation, we can kind of set that up because I think it's still, even though um, there's a lot of research and talk about it, it's still kind of nebulous to most people. Like, what is it? Great word, nebulous. Um, let's, let's, Let's do a, a segue into the nebulous aspect after a bit because it is extremely nebulous and there are scientific reasons for that. But let's bring it into the practical uh, realm. First of all, when we're dealing with any kind of natural product or any drug for that matter, toxicity is a major issue. Um, tolerability is an issue. And those aren't necessarily the same thing. Something can be low toxic, but a patient doesn't tolerate it, for example. A lot of folks do not like the head high from cannabis. That is a tolerability issue. It's not a necessarily a, 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 and almost always not a toxicity issue. Um, and then the third point being efficacy. Does it work? Uh, um, on the toxicity side, um, there are some issues with uh, uh, drug-herb interactions. Uh, they are usually not seen clinically, but they are something that folks should be aware of. Uh, and there are a small number of um, patient groups for whom cannabis is uh, relatively contraindicated. They shouldn't be using it unless under the advice of a clinician. Um, uh, kids uh, and even adults under the age of 25 should be used as caution. Uh, the caveat being we know that it is extremely helpful for kids with seizure disorders. And the seizure disorders have their own negative sequelae, their own negative effects, so that is a relative uh, thing, but that's certainly an area. Uh, pregnant and nursing moms, I, I don't work with uh, that patient group at all, so I'm really not an expert on it. Um, I do know that uh, for very serious cases of hyperemesis gravidum where pregnancy is causing a debilitating nausea, some practitioners will cross over into that line. I don't want to discuss that because I really don't know very much about that field. Uh, patients with autoimmune disorders, including folks on uh, immunosuppressive medications, um, and when and oncologists, I think, are very up to speed these days on working with cannabis, but anyone who is uh, involved with chemotherapy, they should really be consulting uh, with a professional. Um, for other groups, for the most part, uh, it is very low toxic, meaning um, it, uh, it takes about, uh, for the inhalation modality, 150 pounds of cannabis inhaled in 15 minutes to reach an LD50, which is when half of the people die. That's, uh, uh, what is that? 10 pounds a, a minute, uh, which is ridiculous. Um, on, um, there's something also called a therapeutic ratio, which is the ratio between an effective dose, uh, versus a toxic dose. Most medications are like in the 1 to 10. Um, NSAIDs are a good example. Uh, um, aspirin, which is also kind of in that category, is about 1 to 20. Uh, and cannabis is 
logarithmic scales away from that anywhere from one to 20,000 to one to 40,000. We don't have any documented peer-reviewed literature that I'm aware of uh, that there's been a single overdose death with cannabis, largely because uh, in our brainstem, uh, cardiac and breathing centers, very low concentration of cannabinoids. So that's kind of the toxicity side. The tolerability side is where clinically it gets very interesting because that is one of the biggest challenges clinically is how to how do we get a patient who is cannabis naive and may actually benefit from a little uh, THC. Um, uh, there are other compounds such as CBD that listeners are likely aware of, but they might actually benefit from that. How do we get them to have a not a negative experience with cannabis? Um, typically, tolerability issues from cannabis are coming from two major areas. One is the THC, which is a dose-dependent effect. Um, uh, and the other are uh, problems with inhalation, uh, which we can minimize if we use a vaporizer model and we can eliminate if we utilize other delivery modalities, such as an oral uh, or a topical or an oral mucosal. Um, so, uh, and then the efficacy side, I really find uh, with my patients and where I kind of am talking about this now, I want to call you Adam, but I call you Dr. Rindy if I can. Please call me Adam. Adam, where, where, I, fi where I find myself going on um, the efficacy side is I really feel that it's almost putative that cannabis is effective for pain. Um, it's not a perfect sleep uh, aid, but it has some real large benefits, large, chiefly of which is its low toxicity. Um, and uh, uh, anxiety. I find that a lot of folks get a lot of relief. I just read a study um, on uh, healthcare workers who are in the COVID space taking CBD have much lower burnout rates than uh, controls. Very interesting. Um, so, 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 so for those three items, I will usually talk about efficacy. But let's say, for example, a patient has a, a, a number of conditions such as diabetes, um, and they're not able to exercise because they also have uh, some osteoarthritis in their knee, and that's really limiting them. Uh, a lot of the times, we can talk about cannabis in the context of pain. And I might say something like, we also know that other cannabinoids such as THCV, not THC, have at least in uh, uh, some animal studies, some potential benefits for uh, the diabetes. Um, antioxidants, uh, almost all, all cannabinoids that I'm aware of have antioxidant properties, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not in the context of saying that it's going to be efficacious against a lot of these disease processes, but that in the context of a health model and a symptom approach, I think there can possibly be benefit. So that's kind of where I am uh, with all of this, uh, Adam, in terms of how I, I'm talking about this with folks these days. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, for like a deep dive, I just want to also refer our listeners back, like the ECS system and the CB receptors um, and those particular aspects, we have another episode that's also up to review if needed, need be with uh, Nick Jacomas, Dr. Nick Jacomas. There's a two-part series on that. But I'd love to kind of get your take on, you know, it's, it's one thing to know, you know, about the medicine and what it does and what it's used for and it, how it works um, as far as like, you know, how we're using it clinically. It's also nice to hear 
sort of just what in the nervous system and in the body from a kind of science standpoint, what void is it is addressing the endocannabinoid system, providing that we previously had left out in our therapeutics? Well, great question. On the nervous system side, I think there is some substantial evidence that it helps with neuroplasticity and helping the nervous system uh, adapt. Also, um, aging nervous system, there are some uh, potential benefits. It has some profound anti-inflammatory aspects um, that we see in complex neurodegenerative disorders such as MS, multiple sclerosis, where there's a substantial body of evidence that it's not just treating symptoms but also affecting the disease processes. And what I'm using, um, and probably one of its most unique features in the nervous system, well, the way that I introduce this to a regular audience is I say, let's build a car. What do we need to build a car? And I start with, I'm going to start with a steering wheel and somebody, and I ask the audience and somebody says tires and another person says motor and someone will say transmission and someone will say gasoline, all of which are good. But hardly anybody ever thinks about brakes. Brakes are usually not in the concept. And uh, the endocannabinoid system does something that no other system does in our nervous system. And that is it uses retrograde transmission. You can Google that where uh, the neuron that is downstream or distal can send uh, a signal to the upstream neuron to modulate its activity. It puts the brakes on seizures, for example. I'll frequently talk about the seizure model is a lot like a reality TV show where everybody's screaming at each other. Nobody's listening. The neurons in a seizure event are all screaming at each other. And um, in order for somebody to call a timeout, the utilization of retrograde inhibition can help the system put the brakes on. This is also uh, very effective um, uh, after an ischemic injury to the central nervous system where there is a lack of oxygen. Um, and uh, when oxygen is returned, there's something um, that called glutamate toxicity where the nerve cells spit out a lot of glutamate. Uh, we know in cell tissue studies and even uh, animal rodent models uh, that if you preload with cannabinoids and induce a stroke, the area of necrosis is less. So it gets back to the evolutionary piece of this system, uh, which 600 million years ago, it was essential, and that's why it's still here today, for the organisms as they were forming bodies, animal bodies, um, th they had to handle a number of problems. Uh, one of which is we're just, just discussing oxygen deprivation. Um, because if you go from the single-celled organism to a multi-celled organism, you have to get uh, oxygen to the tissues, uh, waste products out. Um, uh, another thing that it is, per is particularly important that the endocannabinoid system does, if you think about it from an evolutionary perspective, um, is cell differentiation from uh, fertilization of the sperm and the egg through the development of stem cells and their, and, and their um, changes into our tissues and organ systems. The endocannabinoid system is involved in all of those processes. Uh, um, 
So we mentioned injury. Uh, we mentioned the evolutionary processes. Also, feeding, uh, getting food to the tissues, uh, and the, the the organism needs a system that can monitor and sentinel outside forces as well as internal disturbances, and then make adjustments. So one of the things I a lot of times will ask people is, where is this endocannabinoid system? And it really lies at the intersection between connective tissue space, which is interstitium, and lipids, uh, which are either going to be cell walls or can be nuclear membranes, uh, mitochondrial membranes, intracellularly. Um, and so uh, it is hardwired into all of our body's essential monitoring systems, developmental systems. Um, it's even hardwired into the cognitive systems, as we know from folks on the recreational side. Um, and I refer to it, it's kind of like a fiber optic network, so I refer to it as kind of like the internet of the body. And if you and I, Adam, were having a uh, poor internet connection, our video would be fuzzy, our sound would be fuzzy. Biologically speaking, uh, if the endocannabinoid system or if the communication networks are hampered, uh, that can lead to downstream problems. Uh, we now have something called endocannabinoid deficiency syndrome. Uh, where we, we think a lot of functional uh, things like migraine headache, uh, irritable bowel syndrome, fibromyalgia, which classically we think of as very different, might have this uh, underlying similarity of problems with endocannabinoid signaling. Anyway, I'm doing a lot of talking. No, this is great. And a lot I'm of gonna, talking. I want to comment yeah, on that because I think this is just such a critical point, and I'm really glad that you spoke about this because – you know, over the years, you know, when we started with, uh, you know, using cannabinoids in therapeutics or people just using them recreational, it's like, ah, just take it. You'll feel better. It works. Like, don't question it kind of thing. But if you listen to what you've just described, it, it really shows that so many of our modern day disorders, um, there, there's some seeds connected to this system um, that, you know, if you think evolutionary wise, um, certain people who had deficiencies in using endocannabinoids might not have had a survival advantage. And it's really interesting to think that, you know, when we think about it this way is that it's, instead of thinking about it like, oh, it's, it's pot, it's actually um, part of your innate we're, we're acting upon it's, your exactly it's mod and and not only is it modulating our an innate signaling system it's it's it is the most robust one in the entire nervous system which is arguably a huge control system uh in the body is also involved intimately in the stress response uh hypothalamic uh pituitary uh adrenals uh all the hpa axis is intimately involved in that i i just wrote a a paper on that. Um, and uh, it does, and to bring it to the macro level, uh, societal stress, I mentioned that study of uh, COVID caregivers having less burnout. Um, it, what it does from a health perspective, as opposed to a disease model, is it gives us an ability, and I'm not talking just about cannabinoids, we'll get to that in a minute, but, but this system gives us an ability to manage our internal environment despite a lot of craziness happening on the outside. Um, 
the system not only responds to cannabinoids, it responds to other plants that affect the system. Uh, your previous guest, Dr. Nick, I'll call him if I'm remembering his name correctly, probably talked about CB1 and CB2. Uh, CB1 is predominantly uh, in neural tissue. Uh, CB2 is uh, mostly in immune cells. Let's remember that the synapse where CB1 is working is also interstitial space. It's also connective tissue space. So it is that water lipid interface in the neural net. Uh, in the immune system, the CB2 is uh, is the bigger signaling. There are CB1 uh, receptors on immune cells, uh, but that's a, that's but just in general. Um, Plants like echinacea, which are have a pretty robust uh, evidence base for immune modulating activity, work partially on CB2 receptors, the alkylamides in echinacea. Um, one of the best herbs in Ayurvedic medicine is black pepper. Black pepper uh, has contains a terpene molecule called beta-caryophylline that also interacts with uh, the CB2 uh, receptor uh, and has really wonderful gastric protective aspects uh, as well. So that's the botanical side, but also on um, the exercise, exercise physiology, exercise enhances endocannabinoid signaling. There's a great uh, article by John McPartland. It's in a peer-reviewed journal. I don't remember the journal, but it's called the Care and Feeding of the Endocannabinoid System. That's written from an osteopathic perspective, but I, I think you'll find it fascinating. Um, acupuncture, um, chiropractic-type manipulations uh, influence this system. Uh, there's a study on singing in women that uh, affects uh, endocannabinoid levels. So things that we classically think of as healthy force, omega-3 essential fatty acids, um, are benefiting this system. And things that we think of as classically as toxic to the physiology, whether that be pesticides or even alcohol, it's never fun to say that, but it's true, uh, will negatively affect this system signaling. Um, so what I find beautiful about it, Adam, is it really is not only cutting edge 21st century science, uh, but there's skin in the game for everyone. The pharmaceutical companies are very excited about potential patents on manipulations of this. And right now, I think natural and holistic uh, practitioners, uh, functional practitioners are very excited because the modeling that is being used on the pharmaceutical side is really uh, the, the showing uh, some of the superior aspects of uh, uh, plant-based medicine. I'm not saying that plant-based medicines are superior, but they're niche-oriented, uh, chiefly with uh, meaning low toxicity. Um, and uh, so uh, I, I yeah. prefer to have you interrupt me, but I will talk until you stop me. <laughs> yeah, that, that's good. I, I know you're really passionate about this topic, so I I really appreciate that. Um, the, you know, the interesting thing that you brought up about plants and and perhaps their advantage over a synthetic medication that's that's trying to manipulate this system. Um, from what I've read, is the terpenes and um, some of the um, what's called the entourage effect mm -hmm, mm -hmm. of plants uh, is largely a contributor of this more beneficial, holistic 
effect. So maybe you could take us through just a little bit of a dive Let, into that. Let's talk about entourage effect. And I think that where Western medicine really saw this was in um, HIV uh, and antiretroviral viral drugs in the 90s, where um, when I was in the clinic at Bastyr, we, I, was in the, um, I worked with HIV patients in the Ryan White program. And at that point in time, there was robust funding, so they could come in and use all of our therapies. It was fantastic. Yeah, one, I was one, a part of that as well. Oh, what a wonderful, what a wonderful program. Yeah. Anyway, uh, so, so part of what started happening with these antiretrovirals is they stopped working after a while. And what they uh, realized after a while is, is if we use more than one of them at the same time, they last longer. Uh, we see this in modern oncology and cancer care, where one of the chief problems with oncology medications are the to- is the toxicity to our body's own cells. Um, and so one of the ways that that's being managed is through utilizing multiple receptor pathways, different types of medication simultaneously. And that will allow much of the time for them to be given at lower doses and still uh, having good efficacy. So this is not a model that is foreign. Um, We know, um, and you mentioned entourage effect. I usually use the uh, caffeine as an example because a lot of people can relate to it. Um, Most folks are aware that coffee and tea, green tea, um, even if they have similar amounts of caffeine, will have a different physiologic response. The green, the green tea, not only has caffeine, but it has a molecule called L-theanine, uh, which affects uh, GABA receptors, amongst other things. Uh, so that when you're taking um, green tea uh, with the caffeine, you get uh, a smoother ride. It's not as big of a lift, but you also have less anxiety, for example, less jitteriness. Um, so these molecules can work together. There are five basic, um, five basic uh, modes of entourage or synergy. One is that the positive effects of the combination get, get better. Um, so with CBD, for example, and THC, THC will cause short-term memory loss. It goes away when the patients stop using cannabis, but when they are using a THC product, Let's face it, we all know you're not the sharpest tool in the toolbox if you've had a lot of THC, but uh, CBD in conjunction uh, will limit uh, some of the short-term memory effects associated with uh, THC. The other is rede- uh, so so in uh, so that that's that's reduced harm. So that's one of them. The other is increased efficacy. We know that THC plus CBD together will enhance the pain relieving effects of cannabis. Um, uh, a a third area is uh, dosage um, and. A lot of terpenes uh, in the literature will help certain molecules cross the drug-brain barrier. Some of them will help them cross the skin barrier. Uh, so, so utilization of different compounds to, with a lower dose, get more to the target tissue. Um, and antibacterial effects, which people think really don't, uh, don't uh, belong in the world of cannabis, but we know that CBD has antibacterial effects at ultra low concentrations and um and it is doing so by an unknown mechanism and we have not had a new mechanism in over 30 years on the antibacterial side so it is tremendously promising um uh 
And to back up on the synergy and the entourage effect, I, I like to tell a story about um, uh, some um, berberine alkaloids, which we classically think of as in Oregon grape or uh, berberis officinalis. Um, this comes from a uh, traditional uh, Vietnamese uh, medicine study where they looked at this alkaloid's effectiveness against the malarial parasite. And just like the antiviral uh, drugs in the 90s with the HIV, they, this single molecule achieved immediate uh, efficacy in reducing the malarial parasite, but tolerance developed right away. If they use the whole plant, uh, which contains a specific flavonoid molecule. That flavonoid molecule does not increase the efficacy of the alkaloid against the malarial parasite, but what it does do is prevent the development of resistance. So this is entourage effect. You need to have it hitting a multi... It, a, an entourage effect will only happen if it is hitting multiple receptors simultaneously, um, uh, CBD is uh, affecting uh, not only cannabinoid receptors, uh, both allosterically and um, uh, indirectly through uh, enzyme inhibition of THC breakdown. Uh, it is also hitting adenosine receptors, uh, which is also what caffeine works on. They do it the opposite, though. So caffeine will stimulate and, and uh, CBD will, uh, it will land on uh, TERP-V1 receptors, which are very important uh, in inflammation and pain signaling and even burn signaling. So topicals can be very effective for sunburn, for example. Um, uh, they'll land on nuclear receptors, GPR-55, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So people use the word magic bullet. How can it be a magic bullet? Well, it's not a bullet. It's more like a shotgun that is, multi it is hitting multiple receptors at the same time. Um, and now in the when I was at Bastyr in the early part of the 20th century, we didn't have all of this uh, information, but we now see uh, its application. And the large, the large takeaway is that it allows us to use low toxicity, make it more tolerable and at the same time efficacious. And it's doing that through multiple pathways, not just a single pathway. Another another yeah. long rant, Adam. <laughs> yeah, I think it's you know it's interesting. One time I was listening to a talk by Dr. Abrams from UCSF. Yes, um, yes. And uh, mm -hmm. he was, you know, he was saying like, "What is the definition of holistic medicine?" Hmm. And and the answer was, well, when, well, first of all. Actually, the, the more accurate, the, the question was, what is the def definition of a holistic therapy? And a holistic therapy, and according to him, and this really stuck to me, was if you were to do one intervention and it would be beneficial to the recipient in multiple areas hmm. versus one single purpose. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So his example was like, what does, you know, uh, cannabis provide for the the cancer patient, and it's like he said, you know, he stated that it could replace six or seven drugs. Yes, um, that that are used. I'm not. I want to be clear, not for treating cancer, but for the support of the cancer patient. Symptom management. Uh, uh, it can. 
it can stimulate appetite. And most conventional medications that stimulate appetite don't necessarily have the patient put on weight. That's a big, this cannabis does both. Um, it can be, the topicals can be very effective for radiation burns uh, if used in the context of oncologic uh, care. Uh, it can help with anxiety. It can help the patient sleep. We know um, from um, a lot of uh, um, areas where there's psychoactivity that end-of-life care, which is not necessarily, it's not cancer care, but end-of-life care, uh, the, the psychoactive, psychedelic experience can give folks a different perspective on their life as they are moving through the final stages. Um, it can be good for pain, uh, and it can be good for sleep especially the research shows sleep that is associated with pain. It's low toxic. It works with all of the other pain medications. So not only does it uh, uh, potentiate opiates, so when you're using opiates for pain, bone pain, for example, um, uh, the cannabis can help it work better. It also, in conjunction with opiates, uh, uh, helps prevent the development of tolerance. It, it also, if you're using opiates and have developed tolerance, helps reverse the tolerance. Um, so many, if you're utilizing an NSAID for medication, there's a small study that smoked cannabis, not oral, uh, decreases gastric irritation from NSAIDs, which is a type of a pain medication. Um, so it just has benefit after benefit after benefit. And if you pull it back to the evolutionary perspective, this system is really a communication. It is a rapid acting communication system that is behaving um, and, and the endocannabinoid molecules are not peptides, they're lipids. So most signaling molecules that we're aware of are peptides. And this takes us back to that fuzzy picture. You used a better word than that. Uh, nebulous. Nebulous. Um, uh, the, our classic idea of pharmacology is a water-soluble intravenously delivered medication. That's the classic model. Landing on a relatively stable receptor system. Now, the opiate receptor system can um, uh, change its regulation to develop tolerance, but the cannabis system is not only is it li a lipid-soluble uh, uh, signaling system, but uh, uh, it is also landing on receptors that behave very differently than our classic understanding. For example, the, the CB1 and the CB2 can have separate effects, but together they will form a dimer and have a third or a different effect. The, the, the cannabinoid receptors will also co-localize with dopamine receptors. The endocannabinoid molecules that are based largely from omega-3 fatty acids and occasional uh, omega-6 fatty acids will also form on the tails uh, uh, endocannabinoid dopamine-like molecules. So this signaling system is nebulous. It is so much more complex than uh, conventional pharmacology on multiple levels. Uh, just any one of those features makes it difficult. But we know that it tends to, this is where I go with how I talk about it. We know that it's low toxic. We know that it tends to help folks with pain, uh, that it, it's not far from perfect. And we can talk about its downsides with sleep, but it helps a lot of folks sleep. Um, helps with anxiety and has these other potential benefits that we're not necessarily trying to treat with cannabis, but might be some positive uh, attributes. So, yeah, and you know, I think there's some variability in response to cannabis. Um, maybe you could just briefly talk about how we're learning about polymorphisms 
um, and like the SNPs? Yeah, I, I think that, well, first of all, it doesn't affect people the same way. The withdrawal aspect of it, some folks... And uh, some folks don't get any cannabis withdrawal at all. Others, and in, in other studies, show that the effects can last a minimum of 45 days. For some people, it is especially who have uh, cannabis abuse, it can be very challenging to withdraw from. One of the main reasons it's hard to withdraw from cannabis is, like all other sleep medications, not, not just cannabis, you get a withdrawal insomnia. And so the person who's trying to quit is up at 2 a.m., they're up at 3 a.m., they're up at 3.30 a.m., they got to be up at 5 for work, and they're like, I'm just, I can't do this anymore. Um, so it behaves differently on the pain side of things. Um, one of the reasons I am a big fan of topicals, for example, uh, is because they work very well for me. The oral products do not help my pain. So I'm very cognizant of, uh, of the fact that some of my patients will say it really helps them for pain and others it doesn't. And we don't know why. We do not know why. Um, I have other uh, patients who have no effect uh, from the topical. Again, we don't know why. One of the most unique things about cannabis in the abuse setting, however, is unlike any other medication that I'm aware of, uh, I guess you could make the argument for opiates with methadone, but you can use cannabis to withdraw from cannabis, but they're different types. One, well, The one that you're trying to get off of is a high THC type. Uh, but there are plenty of uh, studies showing um, that withdrawal relieving effects of, of uh, cannabis, high CBD cannabis for uh, cannabis uh, compulsions. And there's even one on opiates where a single dose of CBD reduced opiate cravings for up to seven days. So again, this is phenomenally complex, it, but it works real well in a holistic setting where we understand the cutting edge of evolutionary biology, as well as the cutting edge of modern pharmaceutical science. And it just is a wonderful thing. And we haven't even, Adam, really even started talking about the terpenes yet. So, so um, it's a big, big nebulous topic uh, that has, when the stories are, are told properly, I think that there is some cohesiveness to the understanding. Um, Back to the nebulous side, there are more types of cannabis than there are types of dogs. So let's say we want to design a study, and we want to, we want to see if uh, dogs can't we'll use the dog analogy. Can a dog pull a sled through snow? If you use the wrong dogs, you're going to get the wrong answer. So uh, uh, same thing is true with cannabis research. The other thing that is extremely nebulous are the delivery mechanisms. There are advantages and disadvantages to inhalation. There are advantages and disadvantages uh, to oral use. There are advantages and disadvantages uh, to topical use. I think one of the best um, delivery methods may be oral mucosal, but so few cannabis uh, products have that. And I think one of the most profound may be intranasal delivery, but uh, that is going to, that has its own tolerance uh, aspects um, that are potential as well. So it is a nebulous topic, but that does not mean that it is not scientific. This plant is challenging our models, and we are developing newer and better models as we speak. It is, it is our great teacher in that way. It is, it is teaching Excellent. us that way. Yeah, so if, a, if someone is wanting to support their ECS system without using like an herbal medicine, 
Um, can you go into just some diet, lifestyle, naturopathic interventions that absolutely? I mean, you've talked about a few other herbal medicines, but mm -hmm. maybe just more core diet lifestyle. So great. Um, I, I always I can't remember. I, I believe it was Bill Mitchell uh, who's since passed away. Uh, the organism, uh, and he used it. I can't remember the order that he used it in. Uh, but you have to exercise the organism. Uh, and then you have to feed it, and then you have to allow it to rest. Uh, so the exercise goes without saying, but at different ages, exercise has different benefits. For example, in Little League, exercise taught me how to not only to work hard to win, but also how to, to work hard and lose. So it has a social aspect. As young adults, uh, it uh, is really involved in performance, and, 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 and at my age and our age, uh, maintaining good muscle mass and at end of life may be more important in reducing falls and uh, having a better pain response. So exercise. First, the organism must be exercised. Then it needs to be fed well. The endocannabinoid molecules are, uh, they, they come from 18 carbon derivatives up into the 20 carbons. So um, uh, DHA and EPA beneficial omega-3s are used to make these good molecules. And uh, arachidonic acid, which is a pro-inflammatory um, uh, omega-6, will also make some uh, omega-6-oriented uh, endocannabinoids. There is in the literature some uh, dispute or not enough research on GLA, which is an anti-inflammatory omega-6. But we know that folks with a standard American diet, that arachidonic acid is high, the omega-3s are low, the endocannabinoids are different. So good lipids are extremely important for this system. And we also talked about one of the aspects of synergy is enhanced absorption. Uh, we know that a diet high in omega-3s when given in conjunction with cannabinoids allows the body to absorb five times as much as if it is taken without the lipids. Also, those lipids help with the presentation of the, uh, of the cannabinoid molecules to the immune cells in the Peyer's patches in, et cetera, and the lymph in and around. Uh, so, so that is um, on the uh, feeding side. And then the organism has to rest. Um, cannabinoids are intimately involved in the sleep cycle. Um, it is now being used as a Zykeber and CBD you'll see sold at the airports. You can reset your biologic clock with cannabinoids. Um, so if you are a jet lag, uh, and you can sleep on the plane and wake up in Germany in the morning and your clock has a better chance of being reset. So it has some benefits um, in that area. There are downsides to cannabis and sleep, but there are downsides to every sleep medication that there are. So they have to be judged in the context of what uh, the other areas are. Also, we know that certain aspects of the sleep um, uh, of sleep are impaired uh, as we age. Uh, there are some good early preliminary studies uh, indicating that it can really help uh, with that population as well. So to make it simple, I always go back to what Bill Mitchell taught me. Um, you got to exercise the organism, then you got to feed it, and then you got to rest it. And that's naturopathic philosophy. And what we now know is that that is all supporting the endocannabinoid system. So if I'm hearing you right, um, even without taking endocannabinoids, um, like uh, 
healthy sleep cycle supports that system? Well, if your sleep cycle is disrupted, uh, it can help regulate that. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and also uh, the areas in human studies where we have most, um, and again, these studies are not huge, robust studies, but where we have the most are uh, with pain and sleep and also with PTSD and sleep. And uh, let's chat about that while it's here because it's a big topic and I think important. Look, the PTSD literature is equivocal. There are uh, different uh, areas that are equivocal, but I can say from the clinical experience, one of the things that I can just, I've seen it enough to to have a professional opinion that uh, it can help some folks at least temporarily. I do not think it is a long-term solution, but folks with uh, central pain syndrome and PTSD who have not slept 90 minutes uh, in years can maybe one or two nights get a good rest. That can mean all the difference in the world for someone. I had a, a, a woman say to me, uh, she's in her 80s, uh, first night using CBD, I haven't slept that well since my husband died. And um, it was like four years ago. Now, later that week, while taking CBD, she did, didn't have the same effect. Could that have been placebo? You know, we, we do not know. Um, but on the PTSD side, one of the most horrible things for folks, and PTSD can come from acts of war, uh, it can come from uh, sexual abuse, uh, it can come from a terrible accident, a huge number of COVID, post-COVID patients, if you can't breathe, that causes distress. Uh, PTSD, COVID uh, and long COVID, uh, uh, PTSD is now an issue. Um the night tear, the, the, the REM sleep with cannabinoids, specifically with THC, is decreased so the dreams are not as vivid, which also means that the nightmares aren't as vivid. Um, I asked, and I learned this early on from a patient, I asked her, and I almost, my bias, Adam, is I almost expect it's going to work. I'm surprised when it doesn't work. And I said, do you think it helped you sleep? And she said, oh, no, I said, do you think it helped with your nightmares? And she said, I don't know. And I was like, Usually, because that was surprising. And I said, well, how come? She's like, well, I don't know if I'm just not having them or if I'm just not remembering them. And, um, you know, I think we need a lot more study in those areas. But but uh, on the sleep side, I think that's where the evidence is. Uh, and again, if you are talking in, in a more of a health model, fibromyalgia, what 90% of folks with fibromyalgia have an underlying sleep disorder. So something that can just really quick start that sleep cycle may be helpful. And the CBD is much more tolerated long-term, I think, than THC. I think THC has a role, especially in PTSD, however. So, Yeah. Yeah. And like, you know, with all those therapeutics, the combination of some behavioral therapy um, in conjunction mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and other practices like Absolutely. meditation, mindfulness. Absolutely. I mean, it, it's putting it all together, but I think, you know, it's, it's filling a void that was was previously not there for these patients and people suffering from these disorders. Mm -hmm. And it presents a teaching tool as well, uh, because all of a sudden, folks like, oh yeah, nobody likes it when the internet's slow. You know, it's a it's a it's a good it it provides a good model for teaching about nutrition, teaching about exercise, uh, teaching about good. Uh, and, and the other thing with on the sleep side is it, it is it really does help with sleep architecture. So I would imagine there are military and even space station oriented applications for this. I 
also like to plug that I think that cannabis can help us not only as individuals, but as a culture and as a species. The hemp seed, which does not have, is not psychoactive, is a perfect protein. And it has a perfect anti-inflammatory lipid ratio where the omega-6 to omega-3 is anywhere from a 1 to 4, 1 to 3. So that's an ideal ratio, better than chia, better than flax. Um, um, And to be very futuristic, uh, you know, they're talking about Elon Musk is talking about uh, utilizing the polar ice caps of the moon. Uh, We're going to have water up there. We're going to have sunshine up there. The plant can be grown for food. It has industrial applications. Um, uh, On this planet, uh, there are studies that show we can feed the whole planet with hemp. It's a carbon sink. It's good for the bees. It doesn't need the bees, but the bees, it's good for the bees. Um, And uh, it provides industrial applications, including biofuels, bioplastics, uh, uh, hempcrete, so compression-oriented uh, um, building materials, as well as tensile-oriented building materials. It has this is there's no reason this plant should be illegal at the federal level. In my in my not so obviously humble opinion, when we're talking about that, yeah. Let alone like hemp seeds in a um, salad dressing. Oof. Yeah. I've I've been making some of those mixtures where you throw hemp seeds into some like vinaigrettes or oh yeah really nice addition to your your greens and and the protein density is greater than that of chicken so so per gram more protein than chicken for example fantastic stuff and it's a perfect protein so unlike beans which lack uh certain amino acids and need to be mixed with corn or rice the uh, uh the the protein the amino acid profile of hemp is is very good okay well um this would be a great opportunity for us to just kind of wrap up and maybe if you could give us like a take home message and then I'd love to hear what you're up to, how people who are listening to this can follow your work, anything that you're doing that you're, you know, you're currently enrolling people in. And um, also I, before I left, I want to hear just like a little, little bit about your surfing habit. Oh, uh, <laughs> you know, it's a beautiful day here. I'm going to be, uh, um, I, th- I've considered myself a non-essential practice, so I'm strictly consulting now. I'm looking forward to reopening my clinic, uh, but I am strictly uh, internet-based these days, uh, which means it's going to be 60-plus and sunny. I'm driving out to the coast and going to work from the coast through the weekend. Um, I think surfing is – what I like about surfing, Adam, is the – the pattern recognition of the oceanic environment as a human, anybody who's walked the beach can relate to this because you see the waves crashing and crashing and crashing. And we get this idea that this is a gentle place. Um, But at a certain point in time, we all know that it's not a gentle place. And that change can happen independently of what we're thinking. So we can be trapped in a pattern process where our nervous system is has not registered a change in the environment. And in, in surfing, that change in the environment can give us instantaneous feedback. That's why I think surfers have this um, kind of zen-like uh, property to them. It's not that I can't be surprised. I did some math the other day, and I think I've ridden about 40,000 waves in my life, which is not a – I think I need about 60,000 more to call myself good. 
Um, but I have seen my nervous system fail in pattern recognition time and time and time again. And I it just the, 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 the shift in the wind, uh, all of that, it's not just about standing on your own two feet. It's like, how do I get out? How do I understand the currents? There's a front coming in. I love that. Anyway, um, you had asked a couple of other questions. Uh, these days, I am consulting for industry. If you are a CEO who really wants to see a vision about where, or even I've got a lot of experience in the corporate boardroom. I've uh, not only at Manitoba Harvest, where I was the national hemp educator, but also uh, with Tilray and many others. Um, uh, it is my opinion that the best cannabis companies ha may not even yet have been started. So we're just at the very beginning here. If you want a vision about what the possibilities of that are, talk to me. Uh, if you're a healthcare practitioner and really just want to answer your patient's questions or start kind of getting into uh, maybe some recommendations, not even necessarily authorizations, but just telling people about CBD and THC. That's another good reason uh, uh, to talk to me. Um, if you are involved in education, my Category 1 CME courses have now been translated into four languages. I write courses for doctors, for pharmacists, for nurses. I just did one um, for, with Sound Generations uh, in Seattle that's focused on elder care. Uh, so if you want a course written, uh, talk to me. Um, I am so busy, I don't have time to post as much as I'd like on my blog, but I post most things on my LinkedIn profile. So you can go to my LinkedIn profile. You can also check out my website at drjakefelice.com. I'm going to do better with that, but I'm more interested now in, in producing uh, materials. Um, um, uh, and I, do a, a, I, I am in the process of getting some of my papers uh, through peer review process, etc., um, and I really embrace, and at this time of COVID and, and embracing the docere aspect of being a doctor, which is teaching, um, learn, do, teach, as they used to say at Bastier. And one of the things I love about teaching is it really helps with my learning. And that's what I'm passionate about. Uh, if you are a clinician and don't want to talk to me or anything like that, you will really enjoy getting into the literature. Uh, I suggest uh, just starting with a paper and then fanning out through that bibliography. Um, uh, if you are a pharmacist and are curious about uh, this entourage effect, don't think about it in terms of, don't Google entourage, Google network pharmacology. It's not network marketing, I promise. Um, it is a new paradigm in drug discovery, and it is where I think really the future lies um, because you can only combine pharmaceuticals to a certain degree. How do you find these new ones? A lot of the clues are in the traditional medicine of the indigenous peoples who have uh, whose cultures have these deep insights into how to combine these plant molecules. I think it's ripe. And I'd love to consult with you guys too. Uh, com. Adam, it's a real pleasure to see you again, buddy. Uh, really Same great, here. I yeah. got to say. Yeah, thank you. And, uh, you know, I think um, I just want to send some appreciation your way. Like back in 2011, when um, this was sort of kind of a taboo topic still, um, you really stepped up for a young kid um, that was needing your help. Um, and 
I think because of those original, those steps, like, you know, getting that therapy approved from their oncology team and over at a children's hospital. Now, um, from what I hear over at Seattle Children's, all the kids are, you know, able to try CBD if they, their, their family, um, is wanting to. And it's, it's very, it's kind of a normal thing now versus you are a pioneer and I really want to, um, send, uh, a big appreciation to you for that. Thanks, Adam. Appreciate that. Yeah. And, um, so thank you for your time. And, uh, you know, again, uh, we'll look forward to, to following your work and catching up down the road. That sounds great. Thanks again. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of the One Thing Podcast. Please share these episodes with your friends, loved ones, colleagues, patients, healthcare providers, anyone who you feel might benefit from hearing these informative interviews. We tend to learn best from people sharing things with us. That's often the first time it's introduced. So don't hesitate if these the content of these episodes reminded you of someone that might benefit from it. Forward the the episode to them and I'm sure they'll either appreciate it or be appreciative that you've thought of them. So once again, we'll look forward to seeing you next episode on the One Thing Podcast. And again, much appreciation for you being here with me.